Providence. My name is Ryan Epley. If I haven't met you before, I'm one of the pastors here and excited to open up God's Word with you this morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8. And here's the good news. We've been walking through Romans for seven months now, and this is the halfway part. So when we finish today, you'll be halfway through the book of Romans. So congratulations. (laughs) We're making progress. And yeah, it's might have taken us seven months, but one modern day pastor literally took 13 years to go through the book of Romans. So we're making pretty good progress in this, if you look at it from that point of view. All right, so if you're new here and you haven't got a copy of God's Word, we ask you just look maybe in front of you. Uh, you'll see some in the chairs in front of you. Grab one of those. You can take it with you if you don't own a Bible. Uh, we'll be on page 944 in that Bible. So if you want to go ahead and just find your way there. Romans chapter 8. We'll be in verse 31. And as you're finding your way there, I want you believers to think back to when you came to know Christ. You either asked this question before you came to know Christ, or you were asking this question um, shortly thereafter you came to know Christ. And um, it's a question that if you are lost, you might be asking today, and it's this question. If I commit to this, is it worth it? Will I actually stick with God? Because there's a lot I'd have to sacrifice to make this commitment. You know, my, my time's going to look different. My, my finances and how I spend them is going to look different. I can't, I can't sleep with whoever I want to anymore. Like, if I make this commitment, is it worth it? Am I going to stick with God? So you ask that, that question. You wrestle through that question. But what you see is as time goes on and you grow and mature in your faith, the question changes. As you grow and mature in your faith, what you see is more and more of God's beauty. You see his holiness and how he is completely set apart from all that is evil. You see his great might and his strength. You see that God is sovereign over all things. You see that God is is very loving and gracious. And you start to see all this beauty of God that, that he alone can satisfy us, that he alone provides for us. And when you start to see more and more of God, your question changes from, will I stick with God, to, why would God stick with me? Why is God putting up with me? Because you see more and more darkness in the crevice of your heart, and you start to wonder, why would God ever stick with me if he's that good and that beautiful? Well, the encouraging news is that's exactly what Paul is hitting on today in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. So listen to how God responds to this question for us. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? Okay, let me stop right there. These things real quick is everything we've been hearing the last two weeks in Romans chapter 8. This is all about salvation for those who are in Christ. So we've been adopted into the family of Christ. We are having all things work to our good because of Christ. We are sanctified through Christ. We are justified. We are called. We are glorified. We are saved. We are redeemed. I mean, all the stuff that he's been unpacking in this one chapter, Paul's like, okay, now in light of all of that stuff, what then shall we say to these things? And he says in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Ask now you just take a moment to silently pray and ask that God would speak to you this morning through his word. And take a moment just to pray for me that I would communicate this beautiful truth with wisdom and clarity. Father God, I thank you that you included this in your word. Lord, that we, um, you knew our greatest insecurities and you spoke to them. Lord, you gave us assurance of your love that nothing would separate us from your love. And so I pray this morning we would be encouraged by this truth, that this truth would be branded on our hearts and our minds, that it would be something we carry with us day to day, week to week, month to month, that we'd be encouraged by your great steadfast love for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so in these eight verses that I just read, Paul asks seven questions. So I'm just going to continue with the question asking this morning. I just figured that's the way we were going to go. So I've got two questions I want us to ask and answer, and they're addressing our insecurities about our salvation. Two questions that address our insecurities about our salvation. And the first question is this, how can God see all of my sin and still love me? How can God see all of your sin and still love you? In this first section, first three or four verses, that's where we see the answer to this question. First, God saw your sin and gave his son. Saul, past tense. See, our God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows the beginning from the end. And so even before all things were created, God knew that we were going to sin and that we would fall. So scripture even says that before the foundation of the world, Christ was slain. And so God knew our problem and knew we would not be able to save ourselves. And so he already made a way beforehand because he knew it. He knew our sin. He knew our depravity. He knew the darkness of our heart. And he's like, I've got to make a way for salvation for them. God knows all things. He knows your sin and he still chose to give his son. Look at his question in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, how do we know that God is for us? How do we know that? Because of what he says in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Gave him up for us all. This word 
for spare here in verse 32, who did not spare his own son, should give us shivers. Because what is being communicated here is that when Christ was on the cross, none of the righteous judgment that was due us was spared from him. He bore all of the righteous judgment in our place. The father did not hold back anything. He didn't spare anything. He poured it all out on him so that it would not be poured out on us. So he's not holding back. When Christ was on the cross, hell came on him. So how do we know that Christ or that God is for us? Because he sent his son. He gave his son. He didn't spare his own son. And what's amazing about all this is that the father didn't give it begrudgingly. He didn't be like, there you go. No, remember our God doesn't change. And so we see that he also gives us graciously all things. God graciously gave his son for you and for me if we would believe. We could picture it like this. We we're deaf men walking on the train tracks of our sin. And that train of righteous judgment was barreling down behind us, but we were oblivious to it. We were, we were deaf. We didn't even hear it. And Christ came and he dove and pushed us out of the way so that train of righteous judgment would not hit us, but it would hit him. He took it on him so that we could have life and would have security. So we could know, God, when you see all my sin, do you still love me? Yes, because I saw it. I planned the the cross for Christ and he took it all on. He saw our sins in eternity past and he made the way. So yes, he sees your sin and yes, he loves you and still forgives you. But what's even more amazing than that is that God sees your sin and pleads your case. He sees my sin and pleads my case. Look at verses 32 and 33, because this is where we find this. God, present, present tense, sees our sin. And this is what's interesting. When you come to Christ, you start to pull back different layers of your heart, and you start to see more and more sin. So when we first come to Christ, we try to, like the Holy Spirit convicts us, and we leave certain big sins behind. But what we find underneath these layers is that our, our heart is more dark and corrupted than we ever thought it was. We start to... to to peel back these layers, and what we see is the great selfishness within our heart. And what we see is great pride within our heart. And so we start to see more and more of the sin in our lives that we never even thought was there. And Christ knows you better than you know you. He knew those sins. sees those sins now that you don't even see. And he still pleads your case. He still forgives you. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring a charge? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? This is not saying that we're not going to have any accusations placed against us. Satan's name literally means accuser. He's going to accuse you. He's going to accuse me of my sins and keep bringing them up over and over again. See, look, he did it again. See, he's sinning. He's sinning. I mean, our our society brings accusations against us all the time. Paul's not saying nobody's going to bring a charge. Nobody's going to bring an accusation against us. What he's saying is that none of them will stick. None of them will stick. And the reason why none of them will stick is because it is God who justifies. Verse 33, it is God who justifies. Now, this is huge because as Christians, we start to see our sin mounting within our hearts and our minds. And we're like, 
gosh, is this sin going to prevail over God's salvation? I mean, is this sin, can, can I really be forgiven of all of this stuff? We start to get worried and scared because our heart is continually bringing charges against us. See, there you go sinning again. But this is what's amazing. And here's the good news. Your heart does not justify you. When you're doing what's, what's right and you're feeling good, your heart does not justify you before God. When you're sinning and you've done what is wrong and wicked and you feel guilty in that moment, your heart is not what justifies you. It is God and God alone who justifies you. So it's not that no accusations are going to come, but that Christ has covered them all. He asks the next question, who can condemn? And he answers that by pointing to Christ. Christ is the only one that can condemn, but look what he's done. Look at the great lengths Christ has taken that we could find salvation. Look at verse 34. He mentions three things in this one sentence. He says, Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that is the one who raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who is indeed interceding for us. Christ died to remove the guilt of our sins. He was raised to give us eternal life, and he intercedes for us. Now, the one that we focus in on the least is the last. We, we don't really think a lot about Christ's intercession for us, but this is huge. This word for intercession is a word you'd use to talk about a lawyer. A lawyer intercedes for you. Now, Jesus is not in the, the, the courtroom of heaven Hypothetically, he's not in the courtroom of heaven just pleading for mercy. Please, Father, just show mercy on them. Just show mercy on them. You don't need a lawyer to plead mercy for you, right? Like all of us could go into a courtroom and say, I'm guilty and plead for mercy, right? That's not why you hire a lawyer. You can do that on your own. The reason why you get a lawyer is to put a case together and plead your case to show that you're innocent. And that's what Christ does. He is our lawyer that, that has prepared the case. He says, I know that the wages of sin is death and that he deserves death, but, that, but guess what? I took that for him. The wages of sin is death. I took that on in his place. So Christ is screaming not for, for just show mercy, just show mercy. He's screaming for justice. Justice says that this person should be acquitted of their crimes because of what I did. Now, don't miss this. This is huge for us because so often what we want to do is we want to take God's law in the Old Testament and pit it against God's mercy. And we say, well, God's law in the Old Testament, all it's doing is saying condemnation, condemnation. That person needs to go to hell, condemnation. And then we're like, but then God's, God's mercy on the other side is like, well, I want to be loving. I want to be kind. So I don't want to be like, I don't want to bring all that condemnation on them. Like, so, so I don't know what I'm going to do, but I, I just don't want to bring all that condemnation. God's law... God's mercy are not butting heads. They're not pitting against each other. What they're actually doing is they're both screaming together for your acquittal. They're both demanding godly justice on you. And they're saying, not guilty. Now, let me tell you what I mean by this. When you read the Old Testament, you see God's law mentioned where he's like, if you do these things, here's the blessings you're going to receive. Then also, if you disobey and you do these things, then here is the, the curses that are going to come because of your disobedience. Now, what's so amazing is in the New Testament, Christ is called our curse. For all our disobedience, Christ became the curse in our place so that we would receive all of the blessing and none of the curse. 
That is good news, Providence. That is exciting. So now in heaven, God's, God's law is saying, justice, we demand justice that this man get these blessings. And God's mercy is like, yes, he should receive all these blessings. So they're not against each other in Christ. They are both screaming for your acquittal. And in Christ, we get the joy of both of them. So the law is not the enemy. The law shows us our sins so that we can repent and live in God's freedom and be secure in Christ. But that's just not how we think. We wrestle with this and we struggle and we ask this question, how can God see all my sin and still love me? Because we're looking at ourselves and we're trying to get our thoughts and we're projecting them on God. But God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His thoughts are completely different. Let me paint a picture of this for you. I've got a pastor friend who loves his church well. He's a great shepherd and wanted to care for the singles um, in his flock. And so he started just buying as many books as he could, uh, secular books or Christian books about singlehood and how to best love and to care and shepherd for the singles of his church. He started having dinners with them and just getting to know them. Well, he showed me this one book, which was from Barnes & Noble. It's not a Christian book, but it was, had some interesting chapters in there. And one of the chapters was basically titled something like, How to Get Out of Terrible Dates. <laughs> and so in there, I had just ideas of how you get out of terrible dates. So one that's really familiar, just have a friend call 30 minutes into your date. And if it's a terrible date, just say it's an emergency. You got to get out of this. You got to go home. And so like, get out of this awkward moment, this baggage that the person's bringing. But one of my favorite by far, I, it was unbelievable this was in there, but it was called Bathroom Recon. That's a little title, Bathroom Recon. And no joke, it said, pick a place that you know, and, and that's the place you'll have dinner. And, and then go there just to check that the bathroom window is big enough for you to fit out. <laughs> no joke, it had diagrams. I wish you could find it and show a picture. There's diagrams on like how to do, undo latches, different latches, and then like how, how to squeeze out the window and get out of this uh, awkward situation. And you know what? That's what we, we think about. And, and, and legitimately, those are great questions because we don't want to be stuck with somebody who's awkward or somebody who has a lot of baggage. And so we are thinking, how do we get out of these situations? Now, what's so amazing about this is that's our thoughts, but those are not God's thoughts. God saw all of your baggage and he sees all of your sin and he chose to commit to you anyway. He said, I, I see your baggage. I'm not getting out. I'm not running away. I'm here. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're, we're the ones sitting across the table that are the awkward date. We're the ones with all the baggage. And God's on the other side with his great beauty. And still he says, I will not leave you. I'm here for you. I'm not gonna leave you in your baggage. I'm actually gonna pick it up and carry your sins in your place. And so our minds are tempted to think, well, with all this baggage, is God gonna leave me? And God's like, no, that book is not on my shelf. I'm not looking for a way of escape. I chose the way of sacrifice so that you could know my love would be with you even in the midst of your darkest times. My love will be with you in the midst of your great sin. I will still forgive and love you and care for you. So Christian, know and rest in Christ's security. Second question I want us to tackle is, does suffering in my life mean that God hasn't forgiven me? Does suffering in my life mean that God hasn't forgiven me? Because we read this passage, right? And we think, look at all this love that's mentioned in here. If, if God loves us this much, then trouble can't come in my life, right? Well, Scripture is clear that there's nothing more certain than God's love for you, but also trouble in this world. 
Because we live in a broken, fallen world, sin splashes up on us. Not even our own sin at times. Other people's sins offend and splash upon us. And so when we ask this question, does my suffering in my life mean that God hasn't forgiven me? We're looking at the wrong place. We're looking to our circumstances to find security in our salvation. And in the midst of your pain and suffering, there are times when God does discipline us, but he will never punish a Christian. And what I mean by that is Christ bore the complete punishment on the cross, but he does discipline. Scripture says God disciplines those whom he loves. I love my three-year-old little girl, Haley. And so I discipline her at times to protect her so she would do the right thing. So she's about to run out into the street. I stop her and I discipline her. You've got to listen to me when I call you back. I don't want you to run out to the street and get hit. Protecting her. Baby, I don't want you to put your finger in that light socket. I know you're not going to understand this right now, but that's going to be painful. And so like I discipline her, don't do that. So there's times for us that God disciplines us because he knows what is better and just. He disciplines us when we've wandered from his love. And he's like, no, I want to bring you back in love because I care for you. The full punishment was, was born on Christ. So when we go through these times of suffering, no, we're not being punished for our sins. One of the greatest real life illustrations of understanding this truth was found in a church in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, just six weeks ago, Emmanuel Church. Some of you guys have already heard this story, but literally a man, uh, Dylan Roof, 21-year-old, 20, came into their church building with a gun and he shot and killed nine of the parishioners. It's unbelievable. But what was even more unbelievable is when Dylan got to his first court hearing, the people from that church, the victims, were there. And they talked to Dylan, and these are the words that they said. One of them, one of the victims who lost her mother in the shooting, said this, and I quote, You took something very precious away from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people, but God forgives and I forgive you. Another man who lost his wife in the shooting said, he pleaded with Dylan Roof and he said, repent and accept Christ. Quote, do that and you'll be better off than you are right now. He said, I forgive you and my family forgives you. People in the church are not asking, has God forgiven us of our sins or is he, is he persecuting us because of the sins in our lives? No, they see the fullness of God's forgiveness. Sin so in this moment, they're not wondering, has God forgiven us? They're like, no, God has forgiven us and we must forgive other people. And that's an amazing response. Who says that? Who responds like that to death? Those who are grounded in Christ's unshakable love. So they're not being punished for their sins. God is walking in his steadfast love through this time and their salvation is secure in his son. And Paul just builds upon this rock of Christ and he's basically addressing two things. But first he says, no suffering can separate us from Christ. And he starts to go through this list in verse 35. He starts and he says, show tribulation or distress. These are two different words, but they're both speaking of anguish. He said, can tribulation, 
can this outward struggle and angst in life and anguish, can that, can that keep me from Christ's love? He says, no. Well, what about this distress? And this is speaking of an inward heart issue of anxiety and worry. Can this distress inwardly separate me from the love of Christ? No, nothing outward and nothing inward. And then he said, can, can persecution separate, separate me from the love of Christ? Not even persecution can. There's a book by uh, a man named Richard Wormbrandt. It's called Tur- Tortured for Christ. And it's a book about how he just was persecuted for his faith and some of the crazy things that were done to him, some of the terrible things that were done to him. Like he, he was from Russia and at that time they, they would literally take Christians and they would put them outside in the cold winter until they were almost frozen to death and then they would bring them back in and warm them by the fire and then go outside and do it again. And Warren Brand responded and said, to this day, he can't even go and open up a refrigerator door because he's reminded of that moment. There's another one where they would actually build a box just big enough for somebody to stand in with a little room on the side and they would hammer nails in the side of the box. And this is solely because these people were Christians. And they would leave them locked in this box for hours until their legs got so tired they would have to move one way or the other and allow the nails to sink into their sides. Now, this is a gruesome picture, but what's so amazing as I read this book, and I had to stop and read it two or three times because I could not believe Wormbrandt's words. He said, for myself and the other Christians who are here, we have never felt the nearness of God's love like we do in those moments. That is unbelievable that they could say that, but it is true. Even in the midst of our hardest persecution, God's love is there for us. Even in the rejection from our coworkers, our friends, our neighbors, for believing in Christ and sharing Christ, his love has not forsaken you or forgot you. And then he says, what about famine and nakedness? And this is speaking of our economy. Because at that time, if there was a famine going on, the economy was not doing well. And if you were naked, it was because you were too poor to buy clothes. So he's like, even if you're in immense poverty, Even at that point, you cannot be separated from the love of God. And this is a big deal because this this should encourage us as Christians that we cannot lose our love in Christ. This is something that's different from the idols in the world. You know, just a few years back when the stock market crashed and all that craziness happened, a lot of the really wealthy people or used to be wealthy people um, in Wall Street, many of them committed suicide because they had lost their God. Their God had forsaken them. Their God of money and power and success. They had lost it all when the economy tanked. But what's great for us, even if we do lose our finances and jobs and everything we we see as a benefit to us, we do not lose the love of God. These things cannot separate us from his love. He's walking with us through it. And then he talks about danger or the sword. And down in verse 38, he talks about death nor life. Death can't even separate us from the love of God. That is one thing that's certain for us all. You know, 10 out of 10 people die. We know it's coming. But sometimes we worry about what's next. We don't really know what's next after death. Well, Christians, according to this passage, we know what's next. It's the great love of God. It doesn't stop. It's not severed. When someone dies that knows him, they enter into his love. They continue into his love. Not even death can separate us from God's great, great 
love. The second thing in this section that Paul wants to see is that nothing can separate us from God's love if we know Christ. Nothing. So he starts with these issues of suffering in verse 35 and even quotes the Old Testament and how they suffered, yet God's love was with them. But then look at verse 38. He goes on to say, okay, nothing else you can imagine, nothing you can think, nothing you can name can separate you from God's love. And he says, no angels or rulers. No angel's going to sneak into God's office and erase your name from the Lamb's book of life if you know Christ. Because it is written in his blood. Nothing, nothing in heaven is going to be able to, to separate you from Christ. And your Bible might have different translations here for rulers. Some Bibles say demons. There's some debate over whether this is speaking of demons or whether this is speaking of uh, earthly rulers like presidents or dictators or whatever. But either way, the truth still applies. No demon can separate you from God's love. No ruler can pass a law to keep you away from God's love. No ruler can throw you into prison and keep you from God's love. And what's so interesting is Paul is listing all these things out and he has personally lived them out. If you look at Paul's life, all these things happened to Paul. I mean, he was thrown in prison by rulers and leaders. He would ultimately one day be killed by the Roman government because of this, because of his belief in God's great love. But still, not even that could separate God's love from him. Then Paul talks about no location can separate us from God's love. So look at verse, the end of verse 38 and then 39. It says, nothing present nor things to come. He's talking about a location in time. There's nothing in this moment right now. There's no sin you can commit. There's no words you can say. If you know Christ, that can separate you from God's love. There's nothing. And there's nothing in the future, although it's uncertain. There's nothing. There's no sin you can commit. There's no place you can be. There's nothing that can happen that can separate you from God's love. And then Paul's like, speaking of locations, no height, no mountains high enough, no seas low enough. None of those are going to separate you from God's love. He is everywhere. And that should encourage us. That should lift our hearts up to know God's great love will never, ever lead us. There's no place we can be. There's nothing we can do. We can't even separate ourselves from Christ if we know him. If we've trusted in him and believed in him because he is the author and finisher of our faith. He began it in you. He gave it to you through his work on the cross. And so since you didn't earn it by works, you can't lose it by works either. It's both steadfast in Christ. Your salvation is in him. Now with that in mind and that in your thoughts, look back at verse 37, because I don't want us to miss this. Verse 37 says, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. I mean, Paul could have just said, we are conquerors through him who loved us. But he doesn't. He, he makes a specific point to say, we're more than conquerors. And I think there's a, there's an illustration of why. Paul's not saying that we are weary, battle-worn people who are going through all this stuff and struggles. And so like, we're conquerors. Like, whew, like we, we've defeated that stuff and it's good, but like, we, we, we're just worn out. We're not conquerors that have come in and taken a city and we're burnt out from the, the conquest. No, we're more than conquerors. And I think what he's saying there, what he's applying there is, we're those that come behind the king who's already won the battle. He has conquered. He has done all things for us. 
And so we just get to come in and enter into his rest. We get to come in and be secure in him. And so we find rest and truth in him. That's why there's statements where Jesus says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's in the context of salvation. People that are working for their salvation. Well, if I'm good enough, if I do enough things right, then I'll be good. He's like, no, 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 be more than a conqueror. Don't try to earn it, receive it. It is found in Christ and it's found in Christ alone. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. So to, to answer this first question, or to answer the second question, is, does my suffering in my life mean that God hasn't forgiven me? My challenge to you is this. Don't look at your circumstances to give you salvation security. Look at your Savior. Your circumstances will change. Your Savior will not. We don't look to our circumstances to know we are saved. We look to Christ to know we are saved. You want to know how God loves you? You look back to the cross. This is a proof of his great love. And sometimes we'll think, God, well, if you make my life easy enough, then I'll know you truly love me. Put put that up against the face of Christ, and it does not reflect. An easy life does not mean that you're a saved Christian. Let me ask you this. Did God the Father love Jesus Christ? Yes. So this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But did Christ experience pain and suffering and death? Yes. But it wasn't because God didn't love him. It's because we're in this fallen, broken world that Christ came to fix and redeem. So we don't look to our circumstances. We look to Christ to know that we are saved. I'll close with this illustration. Back in the 1950s and early 1960s, there was a race to put the first man in space. Uh, the U.S. Was, was working to do this. Russia was working to do this. And um, in April 1961, Russia put the first man in space. Yuri was his name. And it was interesting because after he came back down from space, he had a press interview. And in the interview, um, he made this comment, kind of smugly, like a little, little point. But he said, I have a rose to the heavens. And when I was there, I noticed there was no God. An Oxford professor, C.S. Lewis, heard this statement and responded to it. And he said this, he said, we're making a category mistake right here. What you're saying is like Hamlet saying, I'm going to go up to my attic and find Shakespeare. Hamlet's not going to find Shakespeare in his attic. Why? Because he's not there. What's the only way that Hamlet could meet Shakespeare? If Shakespeare wrote himself into the story. And that's exactly what God did. Jesus Christ wrote himself into our story so we would know his great love. And that we should be secure in his great love. So we have it in Christ. We know that nothing in creation can separate us from the love of Christ because scripture tells us that all things were made through Jesus and for Jesus. And in him, all things hold together. Nothing in creation that's gonna separate us from his love. No pain is gonna separate us from God's love. Christ bore the ultimate pain, both physical and spiritual on the cross and our place so that we would know that nothing can separate us from God's great love. 
Nothing in death could separate us from God's love because Christ died for us, but he didn't just stay dead. He rose from the grave. So we know nothing, not even death could separate us from his love for us. And nothing in heaven could separate us from God's great love because he is there now praying and interceding for us. And that is good news. That is where we find rest for our salvation. That's where we find security and encouragement. It's not in ourself. It's not in our circumstances. It is solely in Christ Jesus.